All right. This morning, our Highways and Byways ministry about once a month goes and visits other congregations. So there's a little bit of a, a gap over there in the Spanish ministries at church. And so, Bill, you're just going to get a lot of eye contact today. It's right there. So I'll know whether you like what I'm saying or not. We'll see. Um, there is a lot of kings that are involved with the birth of Jesus. He, Jesus is born at a time when there's a number of rulers who are all trying to make their name great, that are trying to cement their own power. Uh, there are powerful characters all over the world uh, who are interested in increasing their power, who are interested in enhancing their own glory, lifting themselves up and enslaving others underneath them. And what I want to look at today is how God uses them over and over again to instead of exalting themselves, which is what their uh, intent is, instead of securing their own power and influence, they end up over and over again exalting this little baby named Jesus. Uh, that The contrast there is, is really, really important, and it tells us something about the kind of people that we're supposed to be if we're going to be the people of Jesus in the world. In Matthew chapter 2, uh, we have the story of the three wise men, or sometimes they're called the three magi. And, and in songs and story at times in history, they've been called the three kings from the east. Uh, and these three uh, wise men are traveling and they're following a star of some kind. And, and we don't really know what that means. Uh, some years back, I went to uh, the Oklahoma Science Museum, Oklahoma, put on a special event, uh, and my dad's work took us to this, and, and the planetarium uh, was there where you could look up and see the stars, and, and they can put in on a keyboard uh, the dates and times and a location, and it takes you back to a certain uh, place. Uh, and this planetarium had a presentation where they kind of said, hey, about 4 BC, which is uh, likely where Jesus, about the time Jesus was actually born, uh, there were three of the planets aligned in such a way that if you were east of Jerusalem would have pointed towards it. Uh, and, and he's saying it's possible that it wasn't just a single star, but an alignment uh, in the skies of stars that pointed them in the direction where they would eventually travel and find a little boy named Jesus uh, lying in a manger. And it's probable, uh, based on kind of the timeline, that they actually arrive a couple of years after Jesus's birth, uh, that they begin traveling at some point and arrive there uh, later, and he wasn't in the manger. And so all the stories get kind of mixed up because of our nativity scenes. But these wise men are traveling, and as they're traveling, they encounter one who is already king of the Jews. They come across a King Herod, and Herod uh, was a, a powerful ruler in Israel, in Judea in that time. And he didn't like threats to his throne. And so when he hears that, there's a few rich guys from foreign lands that are snooping around his area saying, hey, we want to meet the new king of the Jews who's just been born. Uh, Herod says, uh, I'm the current king of the Jews. I've got a few questions for you about who you're looking for. And they go and they meet with him. And Herod says, hey, when you find this child, send me word so that I can come worship him too. I want to go on the same pilgrimage that you're going on to meet this future king of the Jews. Well, we need to learn a little bit more about Herod to understand the kind of guy that he is. About 40 years before uh, Jesus is born, Herod was governor of Judea. Uh, and there was a, another Jewish family called the Hasmoneans. They had uh, kind of a dynastic royal family in, Judah, in Judea. 
And the Hasmoneans were ruling at the time, and they didn't get along well with Rome. Herod, uh, who is also there, is an Edomite. He is from the people that come from Esau. And Herod, who is an Edomite, has intermarried into the Jewish community. Uh, he's got a lot of connections. He is, uh, publicly identifies as Jewish, even though he uh, ethnically is not. Well, he sides with the Romans in this regional conflict. And the Romans uh, see Herod as an ally, and he goes from being governor uh, to having a three-year fight with the Hasmoneans, and they're defeated, uh, and, and Rome then comes through, and the Senate of Rome uh, says Herod is now king of the Jews. He gets promoted because of his loyalty and his commitment to seeing the enemies of Rome exalted. Now, when you become a, a king that's set up by Rome, you've got a few jobs. One is you collect the taxes and send them to Rome. The other one is you make sure that there's no uprisings. Your big job is to make sure that you maintain the peace, that you maintain order, that you keep the, the Roman peace continuing in the area that you're in charge of. And so here we have Herod, uh, who comes to be known as Herod the Great, King Herod, uh, as, as Herod uh, over Judea. Um, has a job of making sure that peace is maintained and that taxes get paid. In order to stay popular, and he's already got problems because he's overthrown a popular Jewish family, uh, he does a couple of things. One of the things Herod does uh, is he lowers taxes, which is always popular. Uh, lowers taxes. He, he reduces that so, to stimulate the economy. Uh, Herod also marries one of the daughters of the leading Hasmonean families. Uh, marries her uh, and takes her into his family, and they have several children. Uh, and so now he has merged his influence with the Hasmonean family, uh, quite the politician Herod. Uh, he also undergoes a lot of building projects. Uh, Herod builds, uh, strengthens and fortifies the walls around Jerusalem to make it a safer city. Uh, he builds a port city called Caesarea. He goes and, and builds a fortress city uh, named Masada. But the biggest thing that Herod does is he goes to the most important building in all of, uh, of Israel's history. He goes to the temple and he begins to grow it enormously beyond its previous uh, boundaries. He, he increases the size of the temple. He increases the courts in the temple. Uh, the temple that Herod builds in Jerusalem uh, is more of the temple that we talk about and that Jesus did his life and ministry in, uh, is almost double the size of Solomon's temple. Grander, not only in size, but in beauty and in expense and wealth. Uh, it is a great wonder of the ancient world. And Herod does this to increase not God's glory, but his own glory. He's doing this for political reasons, because while he identifies publicly as a Jew, he doesn't actually participate in any of the Jewish customs or practices uh, or the faith. He doesn't follow the Torah or the law. He's really only interested in himself. And one of the other things that, uh, that we see that Herod gets in the habit of doing in order to preserve his power and his strength and make sure he has no threats is anytime he perceives someone to be a threat, he kills them. So after he marries one of the, the women in the Hasmonean family, he also takes her brother and he makes her brother the high priest and places him over the sacrifices in the temple so that he now has uh, the monarchy and he also has the religious ruler. Well, that lasts for a while until he decides that the brother is a threat and then he drowns him in one of his swimming pools in his own palace. Uh, later, he would decide that uh, his mother-in-law was a threat to his 
power and his rule, and so he had her killed. Later, he would kill his own wife and their two sons. Uh, eventually, uh, Caesar would at one point say, it's better to be one of Herod's dogs than one of his children, because his dogs seem to live longer. He's got a reputation of wiping out any threats. On 46 different occasions, someone who was in the Sanhedrin, which is kind of the, the ruling body in Jerusalem over the temple and the political world of, uh, of the Jews, uh, on 46 occasions he assassinated or killed or ordered the murder of one of the members of the Sanhedrin. Herod has this habit of any time he perceives that you might become a threat to his rule and his reign, he kills you. But he lowers taxes and builds nice buildings. So he's, it's a mixed bag with Herod, right? The kings of antiquity are rarely good guys. The kings of antiquity often uh, increase power and glory by offering you a carrot over here and the stick in the other hand. They bless and they burden. They, they rule with both a desire to, to have your admiration, but even more so to have you fear them. And Herod is like that in every way. And he's doing all of these things to preserve and maintain his power, but also to keep the peace. Herod knows that if in his rule and reign over Judea, if at any point there is an uprising or a challenge to him, and if Rome looks over at his little country and says, hey, this King Herod's not doing a very good job of ruling over the people, the peace is disturbed, rebellion and uprising is taking place, they would take their army, march it into Judea, uh, destroy however much they needed to destroy, kill however many people they needed to kill, take Herod off the throne and put someone else on it who could do a better job of getting taxes and preserving the peace. And so Herod does the best he can. Herod rules in all of these different ways, trying to increase his own influence and reduce the influence of anyone who would be a challenge to him. So when Herod hears about some wise men from the east snooping around in his kingdom, asking people, hey, where can we find the child who will be the king of Judah? Where do we find the king who will be the king of the Jews, the king of Judea? Where do we find him? We know that he was born a couple years ago because we started following this star. And they're asking everywhere. And Herod knows from the prophecies, because if you know that a Messiah is coming who will be king of the Jews, and you currently are the king of the Jews, you actually spend a little bit of time studying who it is that's going to eventually sit on your throne when you're done with it. And he knows that a child will be born in Bethlehem, the city of David, who will sit on David's throne forever, who will become the heir uh, to Herod someday. And so when they start snooping around, he says, you know, we believe that he will be born in Bethlehem. You go find him, come back and report, I'll go worship him too. Now we know, we know, not just from later in the story, but from knowing who Herod is, that he's going to go kill this boy. That he's going to go assassinate this child and say, there we go, one less threat to my throne. My power is preserved for yet another day and another year. The wise men don't know it. For all they know, this guy might actually want to go worship this little boy the same way that they've traveled from another country to worship. Of course he should want to do that. So God appears to the wise men in a dream and reveals to them that they should not, in fact, 
go back and report to Herod. So after they do see Jesus, and they give Jesus and his, his mother and father these gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, gifts that are worthy of a king, gifts that are worthy of a prince, and they give him these gifts, and they go on their way, and they return by another way so that Herod doesn't know that they found the child. Herod uh, continues to be worried about this, and at some point says, I don't think they're coming back here. So I'll just do a rough estimate uh, that this child was born in the last two years, uh, and I'll just go kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem that have been born in the last two years. And that solves my problem. It's not the first time in Scripture that a king is afraid of a Jewish deliverer and kills all the boys to prevent the prophecies from coming true. Pharaoh did this. Uh, with the Israelites when they were in Egypt, and now Herod does it with the boys of Bethlehem in Jesus' time. And in both occasions, God works through, uh, through people to save the deliverer so that the oppressor is ultimately still destroyed and defeated, and the deliverer and the Savior slips out of their hand, slips out of their, their grasp. The violence of powerful men cannot stop the kingdom of God from sending the deliverers that God's people desire and pray for and wait for. So God gives Joseph a, a dream and tells him, take the boy to Egypt. Get away from Herod's violence. Get away from Herod's desire to see him killed. And what we see is that God begins working through the, the evil of Herod to, to bring Jesus into his world. And he does it by fulfilling all kinds of different prophecies. One of the prophecies uh, about Jesus is that when he would come as the Messiah, that he would come and be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. But there's another prophecy that says that he'll be a Galilean, which seems like he would come from the area around Nazareth. And there's another prophecy that says that, that, that out of Egypt I will call one who shall come to my people. And there's another prophecy that says that, that there will be weeping in Ramah, that there will be uh, weeping of mothers who are losing something. And, and all of these suddenly start coming true because the family is trying to escape Herod. He's born in Bethlehem. He flees to Egypt. He returns from Egypt. When he comes back, he goes to, uh, to live in, in Nazareth, which is in Galilee. So Jesus is born in Bethlehem which is not where Mary and Joseph start out, goes to Egypt, comes out of Egypt, goes to Galilee, and is raised as a Galilean. And all these prophecies that, that when you look at them, you think those can't fit together, are suddenly coming true. Why? Because this family has to escape from Herod's evil, cruel desire to preserve his own power. And it's not just Herod that is trying to exalt himself. There's another king, the king who is actually over all of the Roman Empire, who doesn't come up in, in Matthew's gospel, but does come up in Luke's. In Luke chapter 2, when Luke is talking about the birth of Jesus, he starts out by saying, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. Now this is important because one of the big prophecies that is expected of the king, that will be the king of the Jews, is that he will be born in David's hometown. He'll be born in Bethlehem. 
And there's so many prophecies about Jesus that he fulfills, but there's some of them you might ask, is it possible that Jesus at some point in his life decided he wanted to be the Messiah? And so he went and looked at the list of prophecies and said, I better start checking some of these off if I want to get the job I'm, I'm angling for. If I want to become the ruler of the Jews, I've got to start doing some of these things. Sure, that's possible. It's possible that that could have happened. But you can't intentionally choose where you're born. Joseph and Mary weren't going to Bethlehem because they believed uh, that they needed to have their kid there just in case he became the Messiah. He would have the qualifications that were needed. This is something that God is working out through power players in the world that are trying to benefit themselves. Caesar Augustus is taking a census so that he can get more accurate taxes and so that he can brag about the number of people that live in all the different areas where he rules and reigns over them. And he does so, in his case, not at the assassin's or murderer's sword, but by the power of his army. Caesar Augustus was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. Uh, Caesar Augustus became ruler of the Roman world after a bloody civil war where he overpowered all rival claims to the throne. He got his army and he went to war with other armies and was willing to sacrifice whatever it took in the lives of other men so that he might have power over all of Rome. His final rival in the wars that he waged was Mark Antony, and who, when he defeated him, he then became the ruler over all of the Roman uh, world. A Roman world that before that had been a Roman republic. But under Caesar Augustus became a Roman empire because he declared himself emperor over Rome. He got rid of the Senate, he got rid of the leaders, and he said, I'm the one that's in charge of everything. And he made several changes when he became emperor. He uh, made himself great in everyone's eyes. He made himself the emperor. He proclaimed that he had brought justice and peace to the entire world. Isn't that a thing to proclaim that you have brought peace to the world after waging a multiple year long civil war where you destroy all of your enemies with the mightiest military, where you set up little rulers and all of these little puppet regimes and you tell them as long as you keep the peace, I won't bring my military and destroy your people and overthrow you and put someone else in your throne. But I am the bringer of justice and peace. This time that uh, Caesar Augustus launches in Roman history is known as the, the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, a period of a couple hundred years where peace predominantly reigns throughout the world that Rome has conquered, but it is a peace that is upheld by the swords and the spears that their soldiers carry. It's a violent peace. It's a peace that was achieved through great power and through the destruction of all of his enemies. And Caesar Augustus declares himself the bringer of justice and peace to the entire world. And then he goes and he says, hey, you guys remember my dad, Julius Caesar, uh, who adopted me. One of the things you need to know about him is he was divine. He was God in the flesh. He was a deity to be worshipped. Oh, by the way, that makes me the son of God. And I inherited a lot of that godness. I inherited a lot of the things that Julius Caesar had now belong to me. I'm more powerful than he was, and I'm divine like he was. And while he doesn't 
often come out and say it, he begins uh, ascribing people to give him glory and to give him honor and to worship him. And he begins to be worshipped throughout the Roman world, especially in the East. And, and we see that he becomes uh, not just the bringer of justice and peace, but that people around the world begin to refer to him as Savior and Lord. And they refer to him uh, as the great divine Caesar Augustus, the one who is worthy of worship and of praise. And now at the height of his power, he calls for a census which sends Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. The power that he achieved through the strength of his war machine. A peace that he brought at the tip of a spear. And now Mary and Joseph go to Bethlehem. And to them a child is born. And we see these prophecies again, over and over again, being fulfilled because of the cruel things that kings are doing to people as God brings about in all these little ways his plan in ways that fulfill the prophecies of the great king to come who will overwhelm and overcome and last beyond all of these little kings who are trying to cling so hard to power to exalt themselves and pursue their own glory. So in Luke chapter 2, a child is born, and in verse 8 it describes this scene uh, where these angels come and sing and proclaim something to the shepherds, shepherds who are in the field. And here's what they say. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. All right, we've got a de-nativity, this scene, to really get what's going on here, right? We see the nativity, we see the shepherds, and they've got their big staffs with the crooks, and, and we're just so used to it that we lose the awe of what's going on here. So the shepherds are out in the field, and shepherds, uh, remember, aren't cute. David was a shepherd, right? And she David says, uh, I have to fight off the lions and the bears with my own hands. I hit them with my sling, and if they have a sheep, I go pull it out of their mouths, and then I punch them in the face. This is David. That's how he's shepherding. And so when we get the idea of, of these guys that are just kind of overdressed in the tunics with the, the shepherd's crooks, and, and yeah, they smell like sheep, and they're, they're not wealthy, they are poor, but these are, these are tough guys that are willing to fight off threats to the sheep. 
And the angels appear, and, and the glory is wrapped all around them. And these shepherds were terrified. They're terrified. And so as is often the case, when angels show up, the first thing they have to say is, don't be afraid, we've got good news. Which is good, because if they showed up with a judgment or bad news, these shepherds are pretty sure they're just done for. They're terrified of these angels. And so again, the nativity scene that has the angels looking all um, clean and pretty and, and glowy, and you, know, you have to realize that if you look at a scene of the angels singing to the shepherds and you don't think, whoa, that's scary. The painting was wrong. Okay? You just have to know that. And we also lose it because we, we don't really translate everything here as well. It's a great company of the heavenly host. That's army language. This is a heavenly army that shows up. And when they give the prophecy about what's happened in the town of David, the great king over Israel, that everyone is waiting for the heir to David to show up. And they know he's going to show up in the city of David. And who is born? A savior. Wait, I thought people called Caesar savior. No, the real savior just got born in Bethlehem. And a Messiah has been born. Messiah is the Hebrew word for king or anointed one. So it's a way of saying uh, that a savior has been born and a king of the Hebrews has been born, the Messiah. And, and it's not said here clearly, but the thing that you have to know is that the statement is Herod's not king anymore. Caesar Augustus isn't king anymore. You know who's king? He's lying in a manger in the city of David right now. But what kind of a king is he going to be? What is the path from that manger to the throne? What is the path from, from being the boy who is laying in that manger, doesn't know how to talk, doesn't know how to walk, he's, he's wrapped in cloths in, in, a, in a box that's used to feed animals? How do you get from there to the throne that will last for eternity? Is he going to do it like Herod does it? through great political uh, victories while assassinating and murdering anyone that challenges him? Is he going to do it the way that Caesar did it, by raising up an army that, unlike the world had ever seen and, and overthrowing all of his rivals and setting up himself as the bringer of peace at the tip of a sword, maintaining that peace by the strength of his army? And suddenly this heavenly army that could, if Jesus ever asked for it, have shown up and fought whatever battle he needed won, won. They're terrifying. They start saying and singing, praising God, saying this, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. The king of kings who's laying in Bethlehem that the shepherds are about to go visit, is going to issue in a reign of peace. Not with swords, not with spears, not with violence, not with assassinations, not with armies. He's going to take a path of peace and be a king unlike the world had ever seen before and usher in a kingdom unlike the world has ever experienced before. And I can only imagine what it was like for Mary and Joseph, who just had uh, this baby boy, and, and with all the things they've seen with angels and with dreams and with visions, and now th this baby is, is born. 
He's been immaculately conceived. Joseph had no part of it. And, and there's, you would have to wonder if there were moments that they would just look at each other that night in the manger and go, are we imagining some of this? Is this, is this real? Is this, I mean, he's a little baby and one of us just changed his diaper and he's king? And I would start to question myself. And then suddenly there's a knock on the door. And you open the door, and there's this group of shepherds. And you go, oh, it makes sense that shepherds would be here. We're in a manger. Are you here for the sheep? They're over in the corner. Are you bringing sheep in? Because it's kind of crowded, and it's already loud. And they said, no, we're here. Is this the place with the manger with the boy in it? Yes. Why? We're here to worship him. We heard about the difference he's going to make in the world. We've heard that he is the promised one. We've heard that he's the savior. We've heard that he's the king. And we're here to worship him. Come on in, I guess. Isn't that a thing for Mary and Joseph to see the shepherds come in and worship their son? Eight days later, we read that uh, they go to Jerusalem to consecrate Jesus in the temple the way that the law required them to do. And so they take this several-hour walk from Bethlehem uh, to Jerusalem with their week-old, eight-day-old son. And they get there, and they're thinking, okay, you know, we're, no one really probably knows us here. Um, this is a huge city, and we're going to the temple. And suddenly a man named Simeon comes up and says, I can die now because I've seen this baby. If you're Mary and Joseph, don't you just go, wait, what? God has told me that I would live to see his chosen and anointed one uh, live. And now that I've seen this child, I can die. Wow. And they walk farther into the temple and a prophetess named Anna comes up. And Anna was married for seven years and her husband died and she commits the rest of her life. She's 84 now. She commits the rest of her life to fasting and praying in the temple and telling people that someday God will send a deliverer. And this is her message. And she's there in the temple telling people all the time. And then all of a sudden she changes her message from someday a Savior will be born to he's here. He's here. This is the deliverer that we've been waiting for. He's here. And Mary and Joseph just kind of have to go, who are you again? Because I'm a prophetess that's been telling people that someday your son would come and now he's here. Now my job is to tell them he's arrived. And her message in ministry changes from that day forward. The redemption of Israel is at hand, she now proclaims. And the ministry of Jesus and the kingdom of Jesus, this King of kings and Lord of lords, doesn't come with all the power and the violence of all the kingdoms before it. It comes in the form of the Prince of Peace. It comes in the form of one who will become exalted by emptying himself and becoming nothing, being obedient even to death on a cross. And then God exalts him. He doesn't exalt himself. He doesn't have to step on other people to lift himself up like other kings do. He becomes the king who puts the needs of others above the needs of himself, who says ultimately in the end, God, your will be done, not mine, so that the will of others can become more like yours. And that your will can be done on heaven and on earth because of the people that will become my followers. And they're going to be a group of people who will turn the other cheek and they'll go the extra mile. 
and they're going to forgive 70 times, seven times. And they're going to be a people that achieve unity through humility. And they're going to be a people who will change the world like light changes darkness. And they're going to do it the way I did by becoming the people of peace. Not of violence, not of oppression, not of power. That they too, like me, will someday be exalted, not by themselves, but by my Father. Because they're like me. They put others first. They're peaceful. They're peacemakers who are blessed because of the peace they bring into their homes and into their relationships and into their families. What kind of a kingdom is it going to be? A kingdom where the angel army proclaims glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. My invitation to you all this Christmas season is that you would be peacemakers. That you would be peacemakers in your homes and in your relationships and in your workplace and in your neighborhoods and in your cars and in the shopping lines and in the traffic. But not only peacemakers in the small ways. It's a season for us to call on the Prince of Peace to bring his peace breaking into this world. Our world today needs more peace. Our world today needs more of the shalom and rest of God and the Prince of Peace reigning over it. We need more peace. We need more rest. We need more love. We need more humility. We need more people around the world in power to become like the king in the manger, not the king in the thrones on the palaces. And so pray for our world. Pray that the light will continue to push against the darkness because this world has darkness and it doesn't understand the light, but the light always overcomes the darkness. Jesus was that light who came into the world in a manger, issuing in a peace unlike any the world has ever known. A king and a kingdom truly worth worshiping and being a part of. If you're here today and you've never become a part of that kingdom and made Jesus king of your life and your heart and made him the prince of peace not only in you but coming into the world through you, through your actions, and also through your prayers. And if you want to be a part of that kingdom, you can come forward this morning as we stand and sing. Jesus is Lord, my Redeemer.